Engaging Leader, episode 175, The Excellence Dividend, featuring Tom Peters. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. In the next two decades, nearly half of white collar jobs are at risk of elimination, either to automation or artificial intelligence. That's according to analysis by Oxford University. Now, every leader and really every worker needs to ask, what will be left for people to do that machines can't do better or cheaper? It's a pretty scary thought. And if you don't figure this out, you and maybe your entire organization will probably be unemployed or underemployed at some point in the future. Surviving this requires focusing on the human attributes that will likely remain beyond the realm of this tech tide. Our guest today is the great Tom Peters, whose book 35 years ago, In Search of Excellence, was the book that changed the way the world does business and is often tagged as the best business book ever. He's written 17 more books over the next 35 years, and his newest book is The Excellence Dividend. It's a book with simple, actionable guidelines for success that you can implement immediately, and it provides a roadmap for your organization and for you as an individual to thrive amid this tech tsunami. And the really good news is that the dividend of doing so is not only survival, but also fun and meaning in your work and leadership. Tom Peters, welcome to Engaging Leader. It is my pleasure to be here. Tom, in some ways, The Excellence Dividend is the sequel to your very first book, In Search of Excellence. And a big driver for that book 35 years ago was U.S. companies trying to compete with Japanese companies. What's the driver for this new book? I think the the principal driver uh, is, you know, the technology tsunami, as some call it, that is coming our way. Uh, and we can talk more about this. I mean, that's the, that's the key. The big issue is relative. I mean, there's, there's one Oxford study that everybody quotes that says 50% of American white-collar jobs, including the doctors and the lawyers, are at risk over the next 15 to 20 years. Uh, then there are people who are equally smart who say, uh, that's a very extreme situation. It's more like 15% of the jobs, and it's going to be over a 25-year period. So, you know, when, you, when you're looking at this, it's, it's either going to come fast or it's going to come slow. But my bias is if you are 40 or younger... 40-year-old, using our old standards of 65 retirement, 40-year-old has got a quarter of a century left of employment that she and he hopes to have. Uh, So the the time frame is 25 years. If you think a significant amount of yogurt is going to hit the fan over the next two and a half decades, you better get your backside in gear and start working now on developing the skills and the like that you need for the future. There's you know, no, no time to waste 
in that regard. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's confusing because the way we talk about the technology sometimes, the, the sort of freak-out talk, you know, the real reality for you and me is, I think, uh, assuming we're not a CEO of a giant company, which neither of us are, and, and you know, most of the people who are listening to us are, that aren't, the real reality is the most important time frame is next week, next year, and maybe four or five years. And the world is not going to turn upside down in the next 60 months. Uh, you know, I, some people obviously are going to get whacked and whacked hard, but the average person is not going to lose her or his job in the next 60 months. So I'm kind of all over the map on this. You've got to be prepared for what's coming down. Certainly, even if you're in a small business, you've got to use the new technology as vigorously as you can. Uh, and the other side of the coin is you damn well better take care of the customers that you have to have today. So it's messy. It's a you know it's the, the you could see the fan was covered with yogurt when we wrote in search of excellence. You know, as I said, it was a very sophisticated book. The Japanese beat the crap out of us, and they had a secret. Their cars worked, and ours didn't. <laughs> we, we, were, we were making business plans, talking about strategy and doing marketing. And well, there's a wonderful line, which is, which is a horrible line. Uh, <laughs> and I loved it. It came from uh, Sachiro Honda, who was the founder and CEO of Honda. And he said, well, he said, let me put it this way. Whenever the Americans pass new environmental restrictions on automobiles, we hire 100 engineers, and the Detroit companies hire 100 lawyers. <laughs> you know, I am afraid that there is more than a tiny bit of truth to that. And so I don't think it's, I don't think it's as black and white as it was then. I think it's murky, but, you know, murky itself is a challenge. It's interesting to me, one of the surprises from the book is that fact that we we need to uh, take measures to sort of protect our own employability uh, going forward on a personal basis? I was surprised by how much that's true for at an organizational level too. That there's this underlying uh, undercurrent of the book that says if you're not helping your people invest in themselves, you're you're also at risk as an organization. Yeah, I'm 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 uh, I'm at the stage of being really rude about that. And what I mean by rude is I, I don't go to church very often. Uh, I'm not what would be called a religious person. Uh, but that doesn't mean you can't use the word moral responsibility. And I think given the amount of yogurt that will eventually hit the fan, every business leader has a moral responsibility to develop her or his people. I mean, the good news is I think it's also the best way to make money. So, you know, it's not going to hurt you. It's going to do you a hell of a lot of good. Uh, but, you know, there was, there was, there was, somebody made a comment, and they, they said business is not part of the community. Business is the community. You know, and we're talking about everything from a one-person show to uh, you know, three hundred and fifty thousand person show, but most, the great majority of your and my fellow Americans will 
spend, assuming they weren't born with a silver spoon, will spend the majority of their waking adult hours working in a business. And, you know, there's lots of implications to that to me. Uh, you know, the, the nasty one is if you piss away your days at work, you're pissing away your life because it's where you live. I mean, I'm totally in favor of you being the most extraordinary family member in the world, taking care of your kids, you know, being a little late coach, uh, being on the, you know, the Parent Teachers Association, and God bless you a hundred times over, but statistically you will spend the majority of your time at work. And so to throw it away, you know, there's something that says only 30% of people are happy with their jobs. To throw your work life away is to throw your life away, and you will not move me from that for one second ever. I love, uh, in the book you say, helping your employees achieve a worthwhile future turns out to be the most profitable way to run a company, period. So as you said, it's, it is a moral obligation, but it also happens to be not just a profitable way, but the most profitable way. Yeah, let me, let me tell you one of my favorite examples that's in the book. You may or may, or may not have, have uh, come across it. But uh, every year, Fortune magazine puts out a list of 100 best companies to work for. And I think this was two years ago. Only 12 companies have been on the list since the first list was published. Uh, and so you... So somebody tells you that, and your immediate thought would be that it would be the sexy companies in pharmaceuticals and so on. But here's what I thought was fascinating. Seven of the 12 companies who have been on the 100 best companies to work for in America every year for something like 18 years are in industries where people say you can't give people job security or good pay, which is to say retail, hospitality, and so on. Marriott is on the list. REI is on the list. Uh, Publix, the grocery company, is on the list, and so on. So that's point number one. Point number two gives me the chills. So seven of these 12 companies are in industries which, in theory, are industries where you can't take great care of your people. So then they go and they say, what practices do these 12 companies have in common? And they only came up with one practice that they had in common. Uh, and, you know, you may have read it in the book, but if somebody hadn't read the book, I bet you that we could have 100 guesses and you wouldn't get there. The one thing that all these great companies had in common was significant employee benefits dot, 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 for part-timers. And, you know, that's just the antithesis of the way we talk about the workforce today. You know, I think it was uh, Publix, the grocery store, has 100,000 part-timers. Well, they have something like 18 paid days off per year. They can buy into the company's ESOP. They have health care coverage. And it's just the opposite of, you know, what you read in the Wall Street Journal or what have you on the average day. But, it, but, you know, my response to that is it damn well can be done, and there is not a single corner of the economy in which it can't be done. So get off your high horse when you start telling me I can't do it because I'm in retail. Well, how the hell come you can't but Publix, a grocery store with 100,000 part-timers, can do it? And then you, you look at some of the benefits, the 
you know, the average turnover in the grocery store world is 50% a year. Publix's turnover is 5%. And you've got to believe that with a 5% versus 50%, you've got efficiency from knowing your job. You've got a better attitude towards your customers and so on and so on. And they, you know, then they ran the profitability numbers and so on. And these, you know, these 12 companies just wiped, wiped out the planet in terms of profitability over the long haul. So who would have predicted that? Part-timer benefits is the you know single biggest indicator you can find of these companies. I mean, would you have, would you have picked that out? I wouldn't have. No, absolutely not. The book obviously talks about multiple, several areas of excellence, but the one area that you've been harping on, I think, for thirty-five years, is putting people first. Uh, and why is that such a big deal still today? And why do you feel like you have to keep saying that? I feel that I have to keep saying it because not enough people are listening. I mean, that's the, that's the bottom line. It, 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 I mean, you know, for this, you know, people have said to me, and I've been doing some PR on the book, well, why do you do this, people, first off? And my response is, you know, I don't say it to the interviewer. Is, <laughs> that's the dumbest question I've ever heard in my life. What is an organization? An organization is people serving people. Our people at the front line serving our customers. And if you're a leader, it is I am the leader serving the people who work for me, who in turn are serving my customers. It's all about people. You know, whether we use a lot of technology or a little technology or what have you, at the end of the day, business is a people business, from the car dealer to the retailer to the, uh, you know, the giant factory making aircraft engines for, for General Electric. It's, uh, here's here's, my, here's my, my joke line. Now, I live about 70 miles south of, of Boston, and there now is a, a law in the state of Massachusetts that you are required to be a Patriots fan. Uh, <laughs> well, listen, I grew, I grew up with the Baltimore Colts, and then I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I lived next door to Bill Walsh, the coach of the 49ers. So this is hard for me to obey that law. <laughs> but here's my deal. Uh, Bill Belichick, the coach of the Patriots, you know, hears about my book and my reputation, which is so awesome. And he said, Tom, I really want you to look at, at, you know, look at our enterprise. And so I say, yes, coach, I'd be delighted to do that. And he offers me a sum of money that is just ludicrously high. And so I spend a month assessing the Patriots organization. And now it's time to sit down with Coach Belichick and tell him about my findings. And so I look him in the eye and I say, Coach, I you know, really have been looking at your organization over the last month and, and I've come to a conclusion. And my conclusion is that your players are very important. <laughs> and the, the way I like to say it, at that point he picks up one of his 23 Super Bowl trophies, which weighs a thousand pounds, and throws it at. <laughs> but you know, if we were talking to a person who had a science lab, a symphony orchestra, a theater company, a football team, an archery team, it's no surprise that people are what the enterprise is about. Well, to me, it's the same thing in a car dealership. It is the same thing in a community bank, and it is the same thing in some giant enterprise as well. It's like the big, duh, 
So that's why I do it, comma, damn it. <laughs> but it's a, in most organizations, it's more of a catchphrase. I mean, you just get so sick of hearing CEOs say, well, people are our biggest asset, and it doesn't seem like anybody in the organization actually believes that. They don't walk that. You say get sick of it. I say I, say, I go straight to the barf bag. I, I, skip, I skip the easy part of the sec and go, <laughs> go the whole nine yards. Uh, yeah, no, I would, I would agree with that, and I, I really don't understand it. I mean, maybe, the, you know, one of the things we said in In Search of Excellence was I've always said you can, you can summarize the book in six words, and the six words are hard is soft, soft is hard. The so-called hard stuff, the plans, the numbers, and so on, are easily manipulable, and the so-called soft stuff, which is the relationships and the people, are, you know, the real hard stuff. Now, my pal, Rich Carlgaard, who is the publisher of Forbes, wrote a book, and, you know, he's a Silicon Valley power guy two years ago, three years ago maybe, called The Soft Edge. And he said the companies that do best pay attention, you know, to, to the soft stuff. And the fact that, and what he goes on to say, which is the answer, not the answer to your question, part of the answer to your question, he says, why don't companies pay attention to the soft stuff? And he says a lot of the reason is who is at the top of the company. People who were trained in finance, people who were trained in marketing, people who look at the world as a glorified spreadsheet. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Henry Mintzberg, who's a Canadian researcher, and, and I just just love this, um, Mintzberg wrote one of his many management books and cited a study that said when you graduate from university, if you have a professional degree, law, engineering, business, you get something like two times as many job offers and you get them at a, at a salary that's probably 50% above the liberal arts folks. At year 20, the liberal arts folks have left the professional people in the dust. Mm. And arguably, the reason for that is liberal arts training is more effective when you're dealing with people issues. Well, as a, um, as a liberal arts uh, educated person myself, I, I think I agree with that. I mean, it, and it, it also just, the trajectory of my career was similar. It was difficult getting that first job uh, out of school. But uh, from there, I never never looked back and never even had the slightest temptation. I had always planned to go back and get an MBA uh, when I was in, in my, doing undergrad, but it uh, I just never had the need because they, it just all the successes and promotions came pretty easy. Yeah, and, and I, I kind of do my smart aleck version when I'm talking to groups, and I've said, well... I'm going to save you a lot of effort if you're a small business person. I am going to teach you basic and advanced accounting, and I'm going to do it in one sentence. Cash in has to exceed cash out. And, you know, it's, it's you know, obviously there are all kinds of clever and cute financing when you get to be a giant company, but fundamentally, you know, I'd rather not have an accounting degree if I was running a small business because the math is not very hard. Mm-hmm. You do not have to do third-order calculus derivatives of the sort that I did when I was getting a civil engineering degree at Cornell, for God's sake. It's interesting that in in the book, so 
So putting people first is such a big deal. And yet, tell us why you started the book with the topic of execution. I tell a little story, and the story is that Conrad Hilton, the great hotelier, had, was at a uh, big party in New York, and his, his incredible career was being honored and so on. And after people got up and told their stories and so on, the master of ceremonies called Mr. Hilton up and said, Mr. Hilton, will you share with us your success secret? And the way the story is told, Hilton walked up to the podium, looked out at this audience of grandees, and said, remember to tuck the shower curtain into the bathtub. (laughs) And again, as the story is told, at that point, turned and walked off, you know, the, the, walked away from the podium and sat back down. And the, the logical point, I, I have used that quote as my first slide. I pride myself on tailoring presentations. I have used that quote as my first slide for about five years. And the point is, to me, it's pretty obvious. I go to your hotel for the first time because it has a fabulous location and you hired some European architect and it is the sexiest looking thing in the world and you have a five-star chef who is running your restaurant. That's why I go, but the reason I come back is for the tucked-in shower curtain, the execution details fundamentally. And my argument relative to putting it first is execution is always, as I call it, the, the, the forgotten 95%. And it's too boring to put into most management books. Uh, you don't find it anywhere. Uh, Larry Bossidy, who was a vice chairman of GE and then went on to run Allied Company, wrote a book about five years ago that I loved, and the title of the book was one word, Execution. Yeah. And, you know, you will find... One title with a word like execution as the full title, and you will find 8,000 finance and marketing books. And so, you know, no matter what the heck is going on, you know, doing the work, tucking the shower curtain in, and, you know, what, what I argue later on, and I don't you know whether you and I will get, this, get to this or not, is excellence is not about climbing a mountain. Excellence is the next five minutes. And if you would like me right now to define excellence, I will define excellence for the average person who's listening to us perfectly. Excellence is your next five-line email, period. It is either a work of art, it is grammatically correct, et cetera, et cetera, or it's a piece of crap. And leaders don't have, not only do leaders not have days off, they don't have minutes off. Everything you do is being parsed by the people who work for you. And I was, you know, I was really going to town on this in a riff that I was doing the other day. And I said, look, I'm not a psychiatrist, but if you give me a five-line email, I bet you that I can do psychoanalysis on you that is as good as anything a psychiatrist can do. I can tell who you are. I can tell what you care about. I can tell the degree to which you care. I can tell whether or not you're thoughtful. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And and I you know I I mean maybe I'm wrong maybe it would take ten lines but I really believe directionally that's the case that's all of life life is not twenty years it's the next email and that email just as much as a billboard on the road or something coming out of social media 
that email is an advertisement. I love your how you quote Jack Welch in, in terms of helping the leader stay more focused on execution rather than strategy. Uh, strategy is actually very straightforward. Pick a general direction and implement like hell. Tell, tell us about that. Well, I mean, the reason I love that, and for you know, younger people, I don't mean young people, but younger people who don't remember the Welsh years, it, it you know, won't, won't ring the big gong that it rang for me, is if you use the word Welsh, other than the fact he made a lot of money, if you use the word Welsh, people would say he was a business strategist. And the answer is he was a business executionist. Uh, and that was the thing that, that really obsessed him. You did not promise to make your numbers, whether you were running a big division or a small part of a company, and then not make your numbers. You didn't do that at GE. You know, you didn't add 20% of fluff to make it look good when you were making quarterly presentations because anything you committed to, you were either going to make or you were probably going to be in the hit-the-road club. Uh, and so he was, he was just incredible, and he, he went too far, and he doesn't have the sweetest disposition, and, you know, we could talk about wealth stories, but fundamentally he focused on getting the damn thing done and absolutely no BS and absolutely no inflation in the numbers. If you said your occupancy rate was going to go from 67% to 74% and it came in at 71%, you were indeed doggy doo-doo, which is to say, most likely soon to be unemployed. <laughs> I love that approach um, of focusing yourself on getting things done with excellence, teaching your people how to get things done and maintaining the right priorities and just picking a general direction and then allowing yourself to make course corrections. It, it, it's, it's a great way to achieve not only excellence but also innovation and a lot of other outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I... There, there are a couple of quotes. I don't know if I use them in the book or not, but you know, basically my bias is that if you ended up where you planned to go, you weren't being very imaginative. Because for you and me and everybody else, every single day brings seven unexpected opportunities. And you know, I'm totally in favor of having that general direction. But the reality is, whether it's a Silicon Valley startup or whether it is a uh, restaurant in Omaha, Nebraska, it isn't going to go according to plan. And if you're wise, you will look at what happens along the way and you'll make adjustments with great regularity. And you may even end up in another town or on another road. I mean, there was a, there's an old, old one-liner that probably everybody has heard uh, at least some variation of, and, and that is what makes God laugh, answer, people making plans. <laughs> it's too true. That's funny. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of making too many plans, uh, one of the surprising takeaways that I got from the book was this idea of avoiding busyness, so, uh, that every every leader should make sure they, they free up enough time to stay focused on what really matters and routinely keep a substantial portion of time unscheduled and unstructured. I was blown away by that. Uh, there is a guy by the name of Dove Froman who wrote a book called Leadership the Hard Way, who I was quoting. And Froman's credentials are impeccable. He was a very senior executive at Intel for 
years. Uh, and Intel has got to be one of the toughest companies to work at. Uh, he is considered, to some significant extent, the godfather of the Israeli technology sector of the economy, which is to say he's the real deal. And he says in the book that any leader, manager, should have 50% of their time on schedule. And, you know, my observation, which and yours is probably the same, is virtually every boss overschedules, has no time available, uh, and I don't think that many people are going to hit Mr. Froman's 50, but what I argue in the book is, for God's sake, sakes, at least see if you can hit the 20% mark. And he has another thing that in the same section, I think I quoted it, I don't remember. I do remember, I did quote it, where he said, every good idea I've gotten, I've gotten while I was daydreaming. <laughs> and, and, you know, if, if it came from somebody who was in some soft industry, but this is the semiconductor industry, and Intel is just, you know, Intel makes GE look like a soft place. It's a brutal environment, and yet there's what the guy is saying, and it's not somebody who has a theater degree. It's some guy who's got a theoretical physics degree, for heaven's sakes. Uh, and I'm not sure anybody's going to take it entirely seriously, but you know, it's, it's, it's really worth thinking about. Uh, I, and, you know, the, one of the little problems that really isn't little is when a boss is overscheduled, by definition, he or she is rude to her or his employee. If you are the boss and you call the meeting for, right now it's 10 after 3 as you and I are talking, if you call a meeting for 3.15 and if because you're tied up in the last meeting you don't arrive until 3.25, in my book, you are an inconsiderate, impolite, uncivil jerk and you're sending the wrong message. You know, we talked about the people stuff earlier, and in the book I talk about the people. It's, it, it is a mark of respect to be at a meeting when it starts, and it is a mark of clear disrespect even if you were meeting with your boss. I mean, you know, I'm meeting with my boss. The meeting I have with 15 of my guys is 10 minutes from now, and my boss is going on and on. If you are a smart leader looking at your own future, you will say to your boss, this is an important conversation, A, I know you are my boss, B, but I cannot be late to a meeting with my people, at which point you very politely get up and walk out the door. And, you know, maybe some people say that's impossible, to which I would say that's BS, it is not impossible. You know, if you want your people to go through hell for you, you will show up at a meeting on time. Don't you think it's an incredible act of rudeness? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it reminds me of, uh, you, you also quoted uh, Ari Weinswag from Zingerman's. From your state. That's right, Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, he said, if you, want your, if you want staff to give great service, give great service to staff. And that being rude, even if it's unintentional, uh, you are just telling them that you're not worth. I'm not. You're not worth great service. And so they're just. How do you expect them to model great service to your customers? Yeah, I think I, th I think that is a perfect translation, Jesse. I really do. Well, we have we've scratched the just the surface. There's so many great practical tips. 
Uh, One thing I wanted to make sure, it kind of goes along with this idea uh, about unscheduled or unstructured time, and it's this uh, old uh, 35-year-old concept known as MBWA, and it's uh, one of the quintessential ways, I think, that unstructured time ends up being uh, hugely important in business. Yeah, you know, it's it was in In Search of Excellence, and we discovered it, we being my co-author, Bob Waterman, and I, he was the co-author of In Search of Excellence, discovered it at a uh, much, much, uh, uh, at, a re- at a relatively small, not huge company. We were in San Francisco at McKinsey. It was in Palo Alto, and it's called Hewlett-Packard, which has you know, grown to be an absolute <laughs> monster. But the president of the company described to us the HP way, which neither Bob nor I had heard of, and right at the tippy top was managing by wandering around. Uh, and as I've said to many people, uh, that was the day that all the lights went blinkety, blinkety, blink, and my life changed. Uh, because MBWA is managing by wandering around, but it's also an incredible metaphor for being touch in touch with the action. And, you know, there's one thing I say in the book, which is, uh, for what it's worth, true, uh, is while I was writing this book, my wife and I are uh, lucky enough to avoid Massachusetts winters, and in your case, <laughs> Michigan winters, and we go for a couple of months to, to New Zealand. Uh, and it's pretty awful to think you would be on the beach in New Zealand thinking about MBWA, uh, but, you know, that's what, I, that's what I've done for the last 35 years of my life. So I'm on the beach thinking about MBWA, and I'm thinking, why do you do MBWA? You do it to be in touch with your people. You do it to learn about what's going on at the front line. And I had this thing, I I hate words like epiphany, but I had something that was very close to an epiphany. And I thought, no, 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 that's not why you do MBWA. You do MBWA because it's fun. (laughs) And if it is not fun to hang out, with your folks in the distribution center at 1 a.m., quit. Stop trying to pretend you're a leader or a boss. You know, you're a 37-year-old guy, and you've got a distribution center, and most of the kids who work there are 24 years old, and they don't have a university degree, and they're scared to death that, you know, that the technology, you know, Jeff Bezos' robots are going to take over the whole distribution business, and you hang with them, and, and you, it, it's a ball to have, to have the privilege of having these kids working for you. And if it's not fun, you know, I, I kind of learned this years ago from a Nordstrom store manager, and she said to me, I would come to work, and I, by you know, 8 o'clock in the morning, I would have 27 problems piled one on top of the other on my desk, and she said, I always did the same thing. I said, the hell with it, and I went and did 30 minutes of MBWA, and she said, when I would come back from talking to the people on the floor, a funny thing happened, and that is most of the problems looked trivial. Hmm. I have to say, uh, I remember when you were walking on that beach, because you were were walking, and after five minutes, you would think of something, and you'd send a tweet, and then you five minutes later you'd think of something else and you'd tweet it out. And uh, so we're 
we're about out of time, and I'll, I'll after I let you go, Tom, I'll share with folks how they can get in, in touch with you. But I do want to do a little shout out about your your Twitter account. There's certain people that it's a, it's a joy to follow on Twitter because you get to you get these nuggets of wisdom right at the moments they're happening. So I definitely encourage people to check you out at it's at Tom underscore Peters. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I love Twitter, and I I love it. I know it can be trivialized, and I know it can start wars, and, and <laughs> none of those things are are trivial. But you have real conversations. You know, one of the things that's fascinated me is there. You know, a couple of books that I've read that I really liked, and they're written by people who are reasonably famous, and so on. And I've tweeted about the book, and I end up with a you know with a Twitter conversation with you know an author who is the dean of the Department of Government or the woman who was the president of Vassar or the guy who was the athletic director at UCAL Berkeley uh, and real people who are fighting with real people. I love it. It's, uh, it's real, you know, lowercase f, but it's, it's real family in a way. And uh, it's, it, it works for me personally. Fantastic. Well, it's also great to have live uh, conversations like this. Fun, really fun to chat with you about your new book, The Excellence Dividend. Tom Peters, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat. It's been a great conversation. Great, great way to spend an hour in the afternoon, and I really mean that. All right, Engagers, get your hands on the book, The Excellence Dividend, Meeting the Tech Tide with Work That Wows and Jobs That Last. There's so much more in this book. It's just jam-packed with very practical tips and strategies, just great nuggets that are, are so inspiring to read because you can immediately see how you can put them into practice. And Tom shares great stories along the way from his life as well as lots of examples from the world of business. We'll provide a link to that book in our show notes for this episode, which you can find at engagingleader.com forward slash 175 as in episode 175. We'll also provide links to Tom's website, tompeters.com, and his LinkedIn and Twitter profile. Our thanks to Monica Harris and our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, J.J. Leahy, our social media guru, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, in the 21st century, the real movers and shakers aren't just leaders, they're engagers. 